This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Thanks for joining us online this weekend at Calvary. We're going to celebrate the Sunday after Christmas online at all of our campuses. My name is Tom. This is Thomas and Zach and John. We normally preach on our campuses, but we're happy to be here together. Our hope for you is that you had a great Christmas celebration, opening all the gifts that you want. We were thinking together about the gifts that we've gotten over the years, and we were sharing some of the stories of some of the great gift stories. Zach, tell us yours. So it's not something that I received, but one of my favorite memories as a kid, uh, my mom was so excited about this gift that she got from my dad. She got him a telescope. So she wrapped it, put it underneath the tree. And then the next day, my dad wrapped his gifts for my mom. And there's a very similar size box right there. (laughs) And uh, sure enough, Christmas Day, they're opening up. They open up two different telescopes. Neither of them asked for one. No one had talked about telescopes. Just for some reason, we ended up with two telescopes that day. Did you use? Uh, I can recall one instance that either of them got used. I would imagine you'd have like a stargazing party that evening. Yeah. 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 I remember doing that. It took about two minutes of entertainment. Then then you were done. Yeah. It was back to the TV (laughs) at that point. Tom, what's one of the most memorable gifts that you got in your childhood? Yeah. I was probably 11 or 12 and I got a flexible flyer sled. You know what those are? No. Oh man, they're great. They got these big red blades on them and they're flexible so you can steer yourself. And I, I'm one of six, so the five boys would go out and go sledding at night. And I remember Christmas night, we lived on a hill and we'd go up to the top of the hill. And the way you go on a flexible flyer is you carry it and run. You throw it down on the hill and you flop on it like a fish. And you go down and you can steer. And that was going on for about a half hour. And then on one fateful run, I thought, I'm going to really go. And I ran hard, and I stepped on the rope, and the sled went to about here. And I went right over the top of the sled, on my face, on the road, and broke my front teeth. (laughs) It went from sheer joy to agony in in a moment. And uh, that was a Christmas at age 12. What followed, if you don't know, is the Christmas Carol, All I Want for Christmas. It's my two front tooth. that yeah. came from my, my episode. So you had to wait a whole year to ask that, though. That's terrible. Yeah. Well, whatever you got for Christmas or whatever comes to your mind when you think of the most memorable gift that you've received or you've given, really the Christmas story is about a God who's a gift-giving God. It is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ. And we just celebrated his arrival, this gift to humanity, the greatest gift anyone could give. But within the Christmas story, there is actually another character or characters that bring gifts to Jesus. The story of the wise men. If you got your Bible, we all have ours. Go to Matthew chapter 2. Tom, would you pick up the story for us? Yeah, and this is perfect because here we are just after Christmas. And this event takes place after the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, quote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Zach, what do you take away from some of these opening verses? Yeah, so much of Christmas for me, at least in memories, is uh, all, all of the songs of Christmas. And I remember being driven around in my mom's car with Coast 103.5 that started playing Christmas around uh, Thanksgiving. And and one of the carols or one of the songs that would, that would show up is uh, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And it's one of the songs that I would just belt. And then as I get spend more time in scripture, it's what, about everything in that first line is incorrect from what we see here. So kings, uh, they're called magi or wise men in this passage, but what we know of them is is they would have been uh, people who were consulted, who could have been sorcerers, or they're following a star in this passage from what we could tell. They're astronomers or astrologers rather than uh, royalty in some sense. Uh, three, we, we know there's three gifts, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but we don't know how many there are. Maybe it's they're, they're wise men, so it's plural. Could have been two guys. One get, one has to hold two gifts uh, while the other one gets off easy. Or maybe there's 40 of them, each of them grabbing like a little part of the frankincense. Uh, we, we don't know what it is. but And then Orient, uh, while the word just means from the east, and that's what we're told here is, is these are wise men who came from the east. In our connotation, Orient has more of a East Asia meaning where I think of Justin Martyr, a, a second century uh, um, writer, Christian. Uh, he identifies them as coming from Arabia. Um, so not quite what we think of with, with Orient, but uh, we do get in there a beautiful thing. So who is he who is born king of the Jews? And and that's what we see as well when he is killed. Here is Jesus, king of the Jews. But when the simple act of these wise men coming from the east, coming from outside of Israel, we see that this is not the correct title. Jesus is king of the Jews, yes, but as these three, uh, these multiple people, not three, we already talked about that, <laughs> these multiple people come to honor and worship this individual, they are acknowledging that he is king over all. And that's what we celebrated Christmas and since then. Yeah. It's amazing to me that these um, maybe academic or even uh, scientific-minded people see some evidence in the heavens that demands an investigation. And their investigation takes them to Jerusalem, this capital where Herod is, and that's probably where they would anticipate finding the king of the Jews. But yet they still need a missing piece of information, which another group of people reveal to them. Yeah, it says in verse 4 that... Uh, Herod assembled all of the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born. So even as they perhaps are experiencing some revelation in the natural world, or perhaps it was a supernatural revelation that they saw, they ultimately have to go to the word of God to investigate the truth about where the Messiah will be revealed. It's fascinating, though, that here the scribes and the chief priests, the one who are the ones who are most familiar with what God has revealed in his word, what his promised plan is about the Messiah, the one who will come to save, that they have all the information to give to the wise men. They can tell him, oh, the prophecy says that he'll be born in Bethlehem. And yet they're not the ones who go. 
It's the wise men who go. They take that information and it's almost as if they just convey the information the scribes do. And then the wise men are the ones who act on what has been revealed. I think that's frankly a warning for us as pastors and all of us who follow Jesus that we don't study the Bible simply for information. We don't open it to learn interesting knowledge or facts about what has happened or what may happen in the future. But we study the word of God because we are called to conform ourselves to what God has called us to be. These scribes, I think, are a picture for us of people who simply view religion as knowledge but there's no life of obedience. There's no life, as Zach said, of worship, which is what the wise men ultimately do. They're the ones who go to worship the newborn king. All right, so we set the stage. There are these Gentile wise men, academic, scholastic people who are investigating the Messiah of Israel, and it seems like Israel has no interest in it at this point, at least from its leadership. So continue with the story. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. All right, so what we see here is Herod is actually not interested in actually knowing where the child is. He doesn't go with the wise men. He's not pursuing the knowledge that has just been revealed to them from the scribes. Um, but he actually has a dubious plan that we'll find out later that he sends the wise man to come Herod back. Herod does? Yeah. Herod is a bad dude. Wow. Pretty much, if you don't think about Herod the Great, uh, Herod the Great is pr- pretty much a paranoid king. And anyone who threatens his kingdom, whether it's family, friend, or foe, he quickly puts to death. Including a baby. Including a baby. And so that's just the wickedness that's in his heart. And so he is sending the wise men really as informants of where this child is. But one thing that's interesting to note is when they arrive in Bethlehem, they're not at the manger, are they, Zach? Uh, They are not. Uh, so we we often have these these beautiful uh, uh, manger scenes to, to depict the worship uh, or the birth of Jesus, which is incredible. But we see these individuals, however many there were, showing up sometime after Jesus was born. Uh, they show up uh, at the house, not where in the place that he was born. So sometime after the birth of Jesus, they arrive there. So not stumbling over shepherds or uh, whatever animal we put in our manger scene. Yeah. They, are, they are coming sometime later, possibly up to even two years after Jesus was born to, to discover who this, this newborn king is. So we know that one of the things that's most important to you is just the historical accuracy of your manger scene. And so <laughs> if you have the wise men with the shepherds and everyone, you might just want to push them a bit to the east because they're still on the way. Build a little house for them. Yeah. 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 Good idea. But all joking aside, they are arriving and finding the object of their investigation. Remember, they came to the palace and they did not find a king worthy of their gifts or worship. But here in the story, they find this Jesus 
the one they've been searching, and they've been searching for some time. So if they've come from the east, it could be up to 800 miles. So imagine walking from Colorado, from Boulder, Erie, Thornton, all the way to California in pursuit of someone who's worthy of worship and one to receive your gifts. And that's the key here is, as John pointed out, the scribes and the leaders did not follow them. It doesn't indicate that they followed them to Bethlehem. But these Gentile, academic, scholastic investigators came and found Jesus. And the response here is they worship. They lay gifts down and worship. And these gifts are kind of unique, aren't they? Yeah, there's three of them. As Zach said, that's probably why we think there were three wise men. But gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We're all familiar with gold, frankincense, and myrrh less so. But they perhaps foreshadow things that we learn about Jesus. Of course, they're all gifts fit for a king, and the wise men identify as they come to Herod. They're seeking the king of the Jews. They're seeking the one who would be called the Christ, the Messiah. But gold was really a gift that was fit for royalty. Frankincense was often used in temple worship at the altar as an incense that would be burned. So in the gift of gold, we see Jesus prefigured as our king. In the gift of frankincense used commonly in temple worship, we see him prefigured as the priest, as the one who would offer sacrifice. This is something that if you've been with us this fall, we've been studying these two themes about Jesus in the book of Hebrews, that he is the king above all kings and that he is the great high priest, the one who made the once for all sacrifice for sin. And then myrrh was commonly used in burial, perhaps foreshadowing the coming death of Jesus, where he would accomplish his ultimate purpose, where he would save his people by his name through his death so that we might live forever in his kingdom. So these gifts have a characteristic of some attribute of who Jesus is, as well as they have some wealth to them. Yeah. And this wealth probably provides for their escape later on to Egypt and to fulfill another prophecy of calling my son out of Egypt. Now, when I think of worshiping Jesus today, I'm probably not thinking of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we want to follow this pattern of recognizing who Jesus is and then our posture and our response is worship. And so, Tom, what's in your mind as you think of how do we be worshipers as Christmas and as worshipers entering into a new year? Let me see if I can roll into it this way. When you think about the wise men, what, what moved them, 800 miles perhaps, from where they were to where they ended up? There was a light in the sky, and they responded to the light they had. That's an important part of becoming a worshiper. We receive light, illumination, uh, truth. And the next thing that they did was they verified, once they got to Jerusalem, they verified with the scribes and, and religious leaders, yeah, the prophecy, the word of God came that Bethlehem would be the place. So the light they responded to was confirmed by the scriptures, and then they end up in the house where Jesus is by God's design, and that's where they unleash their worship and offer their gifts and give themselves. And as mentioned, you know, I've never received myrrh. I don't need it. It's not my kind of gift, but it's right for Jesus in this moment. But how would we respond in worship to Jesus today? One of the ways we could think about it is just thinking about the names of Jesus that call us to understand who he is and why worship is the right response. So from the Christmas story, here's two names given to him. One is Emmanuel. 
And I think the more we understand, if you will, the light of what it means that God is with us, he's Emmanuel, then worshiping him is understanding that every part of our life is under his presence, is in his presence. He's with us. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. His presence is the gift. It's, it's the gift he gave to us. He came that we would see who he is and know who he is. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The, the apostle said, we saw him. And he is still Emmanuel. And that impacts perhaps then every part of our life that we worship him because he's with us in every experience. And maybe the other way that we could contemplate because we all need this is to remember his name is Jesus. You remember when the angel said, you will call his name Jesus, why? For he will save his people from their sins. Yeah. So I would say one of the ways we could worship Jesus is to confess our sins, to sort of renounce our rebelliousness that we all have and our tendency to, to wander away from God. Uh, if he is Jesus, the one who saves from sin, then part of worship is saying, I don't want sin in my life. I want the likeness of Christ. I, he came to save me and forgive me. And so worship can entail renouncing sin and saying, you, you came to give me new life, Jesus. What a gift that you're always here, Emmanuel, with me, and you're always forgiving uh, a, a Savior who removes our sins. I, I think that's a practical way to link Christmas names around our Savior um, to really being a worshiper. I love it. And, and it gives us a clue that probably that wasn't on our minds immediately of what it means to worship. But it gives us a clue and a direction that worship is more, not less than, but more than singing praises on Sunday morning. Right. It is more than the corporate gathering, um, though that is very important. Worship is all of our life. And so it begins here with recognizing that God is with us and confessing our sins. And then worship becomes inclusive in every area of our life, that we are surrendering everything, all of us for all of him. Mm -hmm. We are so thankful to be together uh, just the day after Christmas with you in your homes. Our prayer is that you've had a wonderful Christmas together, worshiping your Lord and Savior. We're going to be back on the campuses and online uh, this next Sunday in person. And we look forward to worshiping together as a corporate body starting the new year. And then we're going to start a new series the week after in January, uh, Beyond Blue, talking about the needs we have in our community for spiritual health as we enter into this new year. We love you all, and we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.